You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. I freed my wife so that no one could wipe his dirty hands on her hair. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so, so thrilled to welcome best-selling author Elodie Harper... Hi, Elodie. Welcome, welcome. Hey, so good to be with you both. We're so happy to have you back. Author of the critically acclaimed novel The Wolf Den and the upcoming sequel The House with the Golden Door to the podcast. The House with the Golden Door picks up where the Wolf Den leaves off, telling the story of a sex worker in Pompeii who starts off in the city's legendary brothel, the Wolf Den, which is a real place you can actually go visit, and becomes mistress to a wealthy young man after a fateful encounter with Pliny the Elder. How was that? How was that? Was that okay? Yeah, Pliny the Elder had to get in there. Not as a client. You know, he's a fateful person who has to be in this book because obviously. Yes. <laughs> leading up to the third book. We are lucky enough to get advanced copies of books sometimes for guests who come on the podcast so that we can read them before we chat with you guys. And I have read it and it is excellent and everyone should go and buy it or pre-order. When are we dropping this? Pre-order buy, buy. Comes out in May. Yeah, I think it'll be buy by the time this comes out. We'll probably, probably around then. Um, I also got an early copy. The Wolf Den was one of my top two favorite reads last year, and I was so anxious about The House of the Golden Door. I was like, is it going to be as good? Guys, it's better. It's even better. I loved it so much. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I actually preferred it to The Wolf Den as well, to be honest, in, in the end. So it, was, it was harder to write in some ways. It's really great. If you haven't read The Wolf Den, obviously, we encourage you to go buy it, read it now. It's out in paperback in both the US and the UK and all other places in the world. We also have an episode with Elodie at the beginning of the season talking about the Wolf Den. If you haven't listened to that, you should also listen to that because we're going to build on what we did in that episode when we discuss some stuff today. So in the house with the golden door, uh, Elodie, your main character, Amara, has now achieved what many sex workers have dreamed of. She's found a wealthy patron who adores her. 
who sets her up in her own house and who lifts her out of the life of the wolf den, which seems like it's a it's a great ending. And it's almost like a fairy tale ending in a certain way, right? Like we kind of talk about this in our episodes, like this sort of Cinderella myth of the wealthy man lifting a hand down and lifting this lady up from poverty. And, and there is a lot of that in Hetera stories in ancient Rome. I mean, there's a lot of that in the movie Pretty Woman, right? Yeah, 100%. And Pretty Woman was in my mind when I was writing both The Wolf Den and The House with the Golden Door, but not quite the same happy ending. It really strikes me reading these stories, you know, because that is a story that we've been conditioned to read as romantic. And that's not really always the case. Certainly not in your book, Amara's Troubles Do Not End Here. So what have you learned about the realities of sex workers at the higher levels of society and how precarious their lives could be while you were researching this book? So a lot of my research actually comes from literature. So looking at how hetera or courtesans are portrayed in Ovid, uh, also in Plautus and Terence, which is quite interesting because on the one hand, there are these incredibly glamorous, sexy objects of desire. And they're portrayed as having a lot of power over men's feelings, you know, and like, oh, boohoo, when they get rejected or whatever. But there are these ins into the sort of darker reality of how difficult their lives must have been. So, for instance, in Terence, there's a play called The Self-Tormentor in which the hetero Bacchus is, is portrayed as this kind of um, incredibly rich, difficult woman. But when she is talking about her life, she says, you know, you only have a few years to make your fortune. And once men don't fancy you anymore, that's it. So just take them for all they have, basically. Um, which is kind of a more sympathetic portrayal of, of the women's plight than usual, because there's a lot of criticism about heteras and courtesans being money grubbing and grasping and all the rest of it. But, you know, that kind of section in the play really highlights why, because they had such a limited time frame in which in which to make their money. And, and I actually had Amara watching that play and reflecting on it in The Golden Door, because I just think it's such an interesting passage. There's also also in Terence, a scene, I think that's actually in The Eunuch, where it talks about courtesans look so fancy when they're with a boyfriend and they eat really daintily, but when they're on their own, they just scoff everything because basically they're close to starving. Um, And this is said in quite a disparaging way, but again, it's this sense of the financial precarity of the life. In Ovid, what we get are these very kind of entertaining snippets of courtesans uh, holding the attention of multiple men at once but when I read it I just thought how stressful you know you're trying to keep this one entertained and that one entertained and make them kind of jealous but not too jealous and he talks about things like writing little secret love notes with the wine on the table so I had a scene with Drusilla who's a very sort of high up courtesan and Amara and some of the other women in which there is this kind of rivalry playing out and in which, you know, that Drusilla has to control. And there's always like the edge of of violence or force or, you know, because it's kind of partly an illusion, the power that the courtesan wields, because it rests on the man's attraction and his interest being retained, his behavior, you know, she's it's it's a it's an illusion of power, really. We've talked about this in our Hetera episodes as well. The precariousness of the existence, but also the threat of violence at these parties, you know, because it, it also depends on the man's compliance with honoring her consent. And we talk about how the Hetera were some of the few women in these men's world who could actually pick and choose, theoretically, in a sense, you know, who they slept with and who they didn't. Yes, absolutely. So they do have this strange 
duality of having more agency than an ordinary woman, but also often less security. And as you say, that agency, you know, she's not going to pick a poor man, even if she's in love with him, you know, she has to make a money, she has to make a living out of the guy that she's with. So it's agency to a point, I guess. I mean, some courtesans, you know, like the Emperor Vespasian had uh, a courtesan who he really kind of relied on for political advice. And then his son, Titus, had his courtesan, Berenice, who he eventually had to send packing. But, you know, it, it was possible for women to form a really important role in a, in a powerful man's life and have power of her own. So it wasn't impossible. But, you know, for many, many courtesans, it must have been a pretty hand to mouth uh, existence. It does seem like the kind of the exception, you know, like the the one artist who gets the really amazing, super lucrative book deal or music deal or whatever your field is. And then there's thousands and thousands who do not get that. Exactly. And that's why Amara, for instance, is always looking for other ways to make money. She can't rely on that life forever. In the house with the golden door, Amara has a few different side hustles that she's running where she makes money outside of sex work. What have you learned about women in commerce in ancient Rome in the process of researching this novel? So I was actually kind of intrigued that women seem to have done a lot of business. You know, we think of women from the past in this very oppressed state. And of course, they had far fewer rights. But, you know, even if you look in Pompeii, um, which is where most of my research was, you've got women moneylenders talking up stuff on the wall, you know, who owes what. You've got a very famous portrait of Terentius Neo and his wife that was over the door of their business, you know, and she's holding some of the the, the accounts along with him, which suggests they were kind of equal partners in, in business. The woman who really fascinated me, who is a central character in the book, is somebody called Julia Felix, who ran this very swanky baths, complex that also was apartments to let and businesses like cafes and and wine bars and stuff. And she even managed, it's the only road in Pompeii that she managed to sort of take over. She took over part of the public road to expand this massive complex that was used for, you know, commercial purposes. And it's her name over the door. Presumably she was running this herself. And this is just to be clear, this is a character in the book, but this is also a place in Pompeii, right? This is a real woman who uh, I've invented her personality based on the idea that she was a forceful businesswoman and a real character. Her business is touted as for respectable people. So she's she's pitching it quite high up. And it's, it's a private baths. So she would have charged for people to go in there and it would have been very luxurious. So, you know, you've got a very enterprising businesswoman there in Pompeii. Uh, and I put her in the book and made her a friend of Amara's because why not? Because that's who Amara would definitely associate with. Amara's got a keen head for, for business as well. And she's always looking for the next thing she can do to secure her future, which makes a lot of sense given everything she survived in the wolf den. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I had Julia Felix's, so she's described as daughter of Spurious, which means she was illegitimate. So I've made her mother a courtesan which would explain some of her background and also her affinity with with Amara. Amara's friend Drusilla is also a Hatira working at, at a higher level, I'd say, with a wealthy patron. What are some differences between her setup and situation and Amara's that make her life more stable than Amara's? So Drusilla has got the capital that a former patron left her. So she owns her own building, which she also rents out with, with a business. So for her, it's not her only income stream. So that's quite important. 
And this wasn't impossible either that you might have a patron who had given you quite a lot of support, you know, in the past and then go on to to get other patrons and have some security. But it means that she has much greater agency and the way that she interacts with men is very different because she really does have the power to pick and choose. You know, she's picking these men partly out of status rather than survival. She's an ambitious woman. She wants to be the it girl of Pompeii. And so she picks patrons not only because of what they give her money-wise, but also the status of who they are. Unlike Amara, who actually doesn't own anything, you know, the the House of the Golden Door is, is a rented building rented by her patron for her. It's a much more precarious position to be in than actually owning your own home. And you do notice that Amara tries to claw her way out of that. Like she's got her own lending business. She buys her own, you know, enslaved performers and rents them out at parties. Yes, very problematic. And it was it was very deliberate. So I wanted it to be an extremely uncomfortable, morally dubious situation when Amara herself becomes a slave owner. It was extremely common for freed people to do this. They would then go on to own other human beings themselves. And it's a business she knows about. So that's what she does. She hires other musicians to rent out at parties like she and Dido were. I had Amara have a lot of discomfort about this and, you know, because we don't know exactly how people felt who had been enslaved when they then went on to own people who, who were slaves. But I, I imagined that Amara would have complex feelings about this, given how traumatic her own, her own life has been. But, you know, she still does it. And I think, you know, people are of their time and there wasn't like an emancipation movement uh, in ancient Rome. There wasn't a kind of philosophical uh, notion that slavery was wrong. And tempting as it is to put that notion into an ancient environment because it's so abhorrent to us, I felt like I pushed it as far as I could in terms of Amara having discomfort and awareness about what she's doing. But, you know, realistically, that's the kind of thing she would have done to make money. Yeah. And it also makes sense given her situation, because it's not like she can pick and choose. Like she's got, you know, her pimp from her past kind of showing up and and making trouble for her in the present. She's got this much more precarious situation with her patron than it seems. And I could see her making a decision to do that out of desperation. Yes, absolutely. And and the thing about her relationship with Rufus, so He's seen in book one very much through her idealizing eyes because she needs him and because he can rescue her. But there are sort of indications even in that that he's a very selfish and quite narcissistic man. Rufus is her her wealthy patron. Yes, Rufus is her wealthy patron, exactly. And so his selfishness and his narcissism in the second book, they aren't particularly different from what they were in the first, but obviously is she's having to deal with him full time, it becomes something different. Yeah, I I thought that the way you did that was really great. Because in a different novel, this would be romance. Like he's young, he's not horribly unattractive from what I saw, like he's the rescuer. He would consider himself a nice guy, you know, and most people would consider him a nice guy. But as we know, that's sometimes not really how it is for the woman. (laughs) As far as typical Roman men go, he's not a bad one, you know? The bar is low. (laughs) I think the very interesting thing about Amara, I mean, there's many interesting things, but one of the interesting things we see is kind of the game she plays with Rufus, and she changes who she is from the first book into the second book because he very much wanted her to be a certain way. Like, he was very interested in this idea of rescuing her, of her being sort of this, like, 
flower in a horrible place. And in the second book, now that she's been freed, he has different expectations. He wants different things and she still has to sort of play into the role of what he wants, always anticipating what that's going to be or else there's another girl who needs rescuing. You know, his attention span is not that great. In The House with the Golden Door, one thing I noticed was that you really did explore the dynamics between people who were enslaved at different levels of society in more detail. And of course, as you mentioned, like Amara goes on to own enslaved people of her own, which is a really complicated and disturbing dynamic that a lot of people were in at the time. It's quite realistic. What did your research uncover about the lives and realities of enslaved people in ancient Rome beyond sex workers and what their lives were like and how tenuous their personal connections could be? Because I definitely noticed that being a theme. It was it was honestly, that's the heart of the book, I would say. So I focused mainly on urban slavery. So the lives of people who were enslaved in an urban environment, unless they were something like or people who had to like deal with the sewers or whatever, and that was their only job, like keep it well, not sewers, but you know, the, the waste, removing the waste or whatever. Sometimes people would have occupational roles and they would be stuck in that. But in other ways, the life of an urban slave was much better than the life of a rural slave who would just be like working the fields until they dropped. Within the household of the family, the Roman word familia incorporates both the freed and the enslaved people living in a household. It's this extremely strange relationship where, you know, a person is owned by another, but they live very closely with them. In terms of what people's lives were actually like, I mean, one of my my favorite books and, and the most accessible on this is Invisible Romans by Robert Knapp. Enslaved people didn't leave loads of texts like Cicero or Ovid or whatever. You have to really look through the cracks to see what they might actually have felt. So you've got the writings of elite Romans who assume, you know, that either enslaved people are incredibly hostile, this phrase of you have as many enemies as slaves. So this kind of knowledge that people you own are not going to be happy about it versus quite a sentimentalized view of enslaved people, you know, being loyal, almost childlike, very, very, very patronizing. And then you've got this ultra ambiguous scenario where people do have relationships which would have been genuine human connection, because even though the relationship is inherently abusive, that doesn't mean that people won't feel something for each other. So I wanted to kind of explore all these ideas in the book through different characters and and, and the way that they relate to people. And in terms of the evidence that's left behind, we've got lots of stuff in Pompeii of like graffiti written by enslaved people, which, which shows they had the same concerns as everyone else, you know, with love and relationships. You've got the epigraphs on the tombs, which for freed and enslaved people do seem to focus very much on family ties. Of course, all all graves did this, but, you know, the suggestion is in, in the research that this is even more pronounced. And you can imagine why, because obviously, you know, your family could be taken from you at any point. Your wife, your children, your parents, they could be sold. You didn't have any legal rights or any legal attachment aside from that towards your owner. So, yeah, I wanted to explore all of that and the kind of rules governing who could have relationships with with who between enslaved and free people and what sort of relationships those were allowed to be. It's such a complex world, I think. But, you know, there is plenty of evidence that people who are enslaved didn't enjoy it. We don't get their complaints written down. But, you know, things like the fact that people would run away or, you know, sorry, trigger warning here, but people would commit suicide to escape. There was a case of a guy who killed his master because the master raped 
the enslaved person's partner. So there's definitely a sense that there was enormous unease and awareness by the slave owning class that the enslaved people were not likely to be really happy about this. And they had various sort of methods of dealing with it, either being incredibly cruel and strict or trying to be nicer to get people to come around. At the time that we're writing about, you know, in the time of Pompeii, which was what, uh, roughly 79 AD? Am I screwing that up? Yeah, so 70, this book, 70, uh, 75, 76 AD. Okay, yeah. So around that time, were there rules about cruelty towards enslaved people? Like, were there things you were not allowed to do? I mean, honestly, not really, because they were essentially property. I mean, you weren't allowed to damage somebody else's slave. But, you know, an enslaved person could be beaten and horrifically treated by their owner. There really wasn't much recourse anywhere. And they had no sexual agency. That was another thing that I did want to come across in, in, in the book is that both enslaved men and women had no sexual agency. They were all exploited. So honestly, and I, I included an inscription from Pewterley, which uh, was a, a big Roman port town uh, on the Bay of Naples at, at this period, which is about the type of sort of horrible punishments that people would mete out to enslaved people. It was, you know, if you were owned by the wrong person, it was pretty awful. Yeah. I mean, we we saw a lot of this when we looked at the Servile Wars, which are obviously, I think, about 100 years before this, maybe. I mean, Pompeii was actually one of the places of Spartacus's big stand. And that's because outside of the towns in that particular area of Rome was a lot of farming communities. So there was a lot of people who were, there was a lot of enslaved people and a lot less masters. And so it was much easier to create an army from from that. And I think that at this point in time, this is still something that is like in the memories of everyone in the book. And in fact, I was, I did have, it just got too much. I did have a subplot where um, one of the characters, Philos, is descended from um, rebels from the Spartacus revolt. But this is still something that's talked about in the town. But in the end, I cut that because it was just, you know, there's only so much you can put in. But, but yes, you know, people were still uneasy about it you know, the possibility that these people who would smile and bow and scrape to you, you know, they, they've got their own feelings and their own desires and ambitions that have nothing to do with you. And so there is this unease of, you know, how people might feel. Let's talk about what happens in relationships, historically what happened in relationships when you had two people who were enslaved or were of unequal power dynamics? Like, how did that play out in Roman society? And also, let's define our terms a little bit, because there's a difference between an enslaved person and a freedman or freedwoman and a citizen, right? Yes. And also, it depends who the person was enslaved to. So you've got this situation. So if you are a citizen, you know, a male citizen, you could literally have a sexual relationship with, with anyone apart from, you know, the wife of another citizen, basically, or, you know, unmarried uh, daughter. So, you know, you could have courtesans who were freed women, you could sleep with enslaved women, you, you or enslaved men, you know, there were literally no rules whatsoever, you had completely free reign to do whatever you liked, more or less, you know, don't be too scandalous about it. But there was no real taboo there. As a woman, if she is freed or a citizen, she could, um, you know, under Vespasian, if she had a relationship with an enslaved man who belonged to another person, she could lose her status. So she could either, if she was 
a citizen woman, she could be demoted to state as a freed woman. If she was a freed woman, she could become enslaved. So, and her children, her children would be um, enslaved to the owner of the man who owned her partner. So this is absolutely brutal. Uh, and you think, wow, nobody would get into this type of relationship knowing this. But then, of course, you've got the situation that perhaps they were both enslaved and then the woman was freed. What's she going to do? Ditch her husband? The, the complexities and the heartache and the anguish that must have gone on um, behind the scenes are just huge, I think, with these situations. And, you know, two enslaved people who had a relationship, and again, it's very noticeable on, on tombs that they refer to each other as wife or spouse a lot of the, the time rather than companion or tent mate, which is, is, is the other word that they could use. But they use the kind of legal term, uxor, even though, you know, this was not a recognized marriage. Um, they could be separated at any point. And even if they were both freed, so say you've got a husband and wife who are both freed, any children that they had in slavery would not be freed. They'd have to buy their kids. So the, the complexities of, of, of how it all worked and also what a freed woman owed to the patron, you know, who freed her, i.e. she, you know, she would have to be his mistress if that's what the arrangement was, etc. You know, it, it, it's a real minefield, I think, in terms of how people must have formed relationships. Yeah, to be a woman in these, I mean, to be a man is also awful, but to be a woman, especially, it's just there's so many pitfalls. And like manumission is, is the term I know for someone freeing an enslaved person. And then they would become a freedman or a freedwoman. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a free person who can make any choice they want. No. They would have duties that they would actually owe their former owner that they would have to perform. Like what? Well, it would be different depending on the person. So, you know, in Amara's case, it's to be to be his mistress. If you were a skilled carpenter, you might have to give a certain amount of your stuff to your former owner. I think, you know, they always had to pay some money towards their former owner out of their earnings. So your tie did not end to your former owner. And in fact, I have another quote in the book, which is from a Roman jurist about how um, the slave of yesterday can't complain if his former master hits him uh, lightly, whatever that means to be hit lightly. So, you know, you, you retained this potentially subservient role. I mean, it seems like there may be some legal differences, but in some people's cases, there might not be a huge amount of difference in terms of their freedom. I mean, there was still a huge difference, even so you couldn't be sold. And I just think that's massive. So, you know, you wouldn't be separated from your family unless they were in enslaved and owned by somebody else. But, you know, your, your actual bodily integrity became yours again. If an enslaved person had a child while in slavery, what happened to that child? Like they could, the parent could be freed, but the child would still be enslaved. But even if they were, you could follow them, whereas you might not have the ability to follow your family. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. You could save up, you could try and rescue, you know, you, you would have, you would have far more options, you would have more status. Um, you would have you would have the ability to earn your own money in some way or another. If a freed person had a child with another freed person, that child would be freed? They would be free. Yeah. And and it was a kind of kind of traditional kind of natural law thing that the child took the status of the mother at birth. At the child's birth, um, but this law 
you know, that Suetonius mentions of Vespasian, of a freed woman who has a relationship with an enslaved man who belongs to someone else, you know, she loses her status. So that could potentially be quite fraught. She might think she's a freed woman, but if she's, you know, having a relationship with an enslaved man, maybe her status has been demoted. So I think this is quite a grey, grey area. Unbelievable. I mean, there's a line in um, Petronius's The Satyricon, which was really in my mind when I was writing, which is uh, Friedman um, at Trimalchio's dinner party says, uh, I freed my wife so that no one could wipe his dirty hands on her hair. I mean, and I had the phrase then, you didn't want anyone to use his wife like a napkin, because I just thought for a more modern audience, that would be, they might be a bit confused about the wiping the, the dirty hands on her. I think there's such a story in that one sentence. There's you know, the pain of the woman being used that way, there's the pain of the person who loves her having no ability to stop that from happening, that he will have watched this happen to her. And also the love and the loyalty that he bought her to stop this from happening to end the abuse. Although Petronius was obviously not an enslaved person who wrote this. And I just think there's so much in that one sentence. These people are so objectified and looked down on at the bottom of the pile but actually when you read between the lines what you see is this enormous resilience and love and dignity you know this is asserting your human dignity in the face of abuse to rescue your loved one from this it's it's saying no it's very mixed when you look at these tales and you could just get sucked into the misery of how awful it is but I think you can see people resisting in multiple ways and asserting their humanity that is one of the things that I loved about The Wolf Den and also The House of the Golden Door is they are dark. It's not a light subject matter, but you do find the joy and humanity and friendships and, and moments of, you know, real beauty and life. And I think it's the same here. And it's because you could just focus on all the awful things, but there was a whole life happening around these awful things. And people were asserting themselves, you know, and finding ways around it and being ingenious and being human and so much more than their circumstances. And I just think it's, I feel really passionately that enslaved people and women are so overlooked or not so much now in, in modern scholarship, but, you know, we've just kind of bought the elite Roman view of, of, of people of lesser status. And actually, these were real people who would have been no less human than anyone else. So I just think we, we can't make assumptions about what their feelings might have been based on the views of the people who own them. I just think so much, you know, when you read old scholarship, and it's just like such and such a slave was really devoted. And you're like, was he? Was he really? I mean, may have been, but, you know, did he have a choice? Right. What other option was there really? And it's one of those things we find all the time with our research. And this was such a great democracy. And you're just like, but was it? For who was it a democracy? Like, at what point in time? Which which laws are we talking about? And I think one of the things that I love about your books and that I really like about the season we've just had on the podcast is that we really looked at what life was like for the other people who weren't like we've spent a lot of time with the big lives. But now we've actually looked at some of the, the people who are actually living, existing on the ground, making the world run and their lives are just as important. And unfortunately, there's a lot of scholarship on Caesar, but there's not a lot on Phryne. We lost Agrippina the Younger's memoirs and Cleopatra's treatise on beauty, but we've got a lot of what Julius Caesar said. In his own words! <laughs> he's, he's not the most exciting writer. Oh, he'd be so offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> he would be so offended. <laughs> But it's, you know, the contrast that with Pliny, who I do think is like so excitable about mushrooms. He must have just been 
so fascinated by so many things. Just such an oddball. I love him. And he must have been insufferable, but also kind of adorable. Like, you know, you know, people at dinner parties would just wind him up and let him go and like have a drinking game to how many times, how many different fish or mushrooms or flowers he mentioned. Question, <laughs> what's some of your favorite oddball Pliny moments? I mean, I do find the fact that he interviewed courtesans about like birth control and had views on what we would term a bikini wax, just hysterical. But it's really, really nice, actually, in the sense that he talked to women. And in, in fact, in Pliny the Younger's letters, you know, his original rescue mission when Vesuvius erupted was to, to rescue a female friend who called for his aid. So, you know, he obviously had women friends, saw them as people. The fact that he interviewed courtesans and asked them stuff about their lives, I, I love that about him, really. You know, that he's just so curious uh, about everyone and everything. As you say, he must have been kind of insufferable. And you know about contraception in the Roman world and, you know, how ladies wax their bits. So it's just kind of, we're not getting that off anyone else so far as I'm aware. He's the kind of person who in modern times would be like, you should have your own podcast to talk about that, Pliny. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow, bikini waxes. Yeah, and just his like censoriousness about it being disgraceful to remove all the hair. I don't know. It's just... Was he a bit judgy about the bikini waxes? We did talk about this before, but I don't remember. Yeah, he wasn't a fan of, of, of the Hollywood bikini wax. I'm glad he let us all know his opinion <laughs> on what we do with our lady bits. I want to go back a little bit to um, Hetire, and we talked a little bit about contracts that they could have with their patrons. We know from our research into the lives of Hetire on the podcast that these women sometimes did have contracts with their patrons that outline the terms of their relationships. And sometimes monogamy was explicitly required, even though it worked against the Hetire's best interest, because she has to make as much money as possible in a short time. Did you find any other instances in the history in your research of contracts between Hetire and patrons? And what were some of the details? So yeah, um, courtesans could certainly have contracts with their with their patrons. I'm going to be ignorant now. I cannot remember if it was Plautus or Terence who has a play that has a big sort of skit on this with a patron who comes up with the most absurd contract ever. Like she's not allowed to look at anyone. She has to sit in the house. You know, it just gets really, really ridiculous and absurd. But you know, it suggests how very restrictive some of these contracts may have been. And as you say, it would limit a woman's business. And it's this really fine line between, you know, holding on to the patron you have, but then if his interest starts to wane, then you do have to start looking elsewhere. But then is that going to accelerate the ending of that contract? And then you need to get in there before, you know, that the timing is, is, is quite crucial. You know, some contracts could work in, in their favor if there was like, say, a type of pension or some kind of provision for later. Um, I don't think that was particularly common. That would be pretty generous. And, you know, some were very informal. You know, they wouldn't all have contracts. And some, if it was somebody who was freed by someone, then that would be part of the this, this whole sort of freed man or freed woman, you know, the agreed duties that you owed. So um, I think the contracts, as far as I could tell, ranged from very restrictive to, you know, pretty much open-ended. Um, and both would have drawbacks and, and pluses. So obviously, if they were open-ended, it would mean you could sort of weasel out of it uh, if you needed to and, and found somebody better. But equally, it might mean that you you were denied money that you were, that you were owed. So yeah, I think 
probably they they generally worked in in favor of the men, (laughs) as everything seems to have done. Oh, yeah, I would say that most likely, I mean, the person who draws up the contract, that's the person it's going to be in favor of, realistically. So it seems like it would often be in favor of the patron. I wonder if there are any instances of Hetire who could draw up their own contracts. That's a really good question. I don't actually know. I mean, there must have been. Will you imagine someone like Aspasia or even a Drusilla in, in this book? thing about their role is it's all about the power of the desirability or Phryne is another really good one. So it's about how much the other person wants to be with you is how much leverage you have in your contract. And for someone like Amara, who has recently been freed, she doesn't have that leverage that Drusilla would have in her in a contract. She's very indebted to her patron. And therefore, the terms of her contract would not be as good as something that Drusilla would get. Yes, exactly. And she'd have less input. You know, she'd just kind of have to take what she's given, really. Would they have lawyers on their side to help them with these contracts? Or is this something people did on their own? I don't think, as far as I'm aware, to be honest, I don't actually know, but I don't think it would have been um, necessarily a a professional, I guess, your steward or your household slave who dealt with your accounts would sort it out. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think that's the role that Philos plays in this book, more or less, right? He's a steward, yeah. He's like the accounts guy. So there is this kind of trope in Roman literature and existed in real life as well of the kind of almost like the Jeeves character the role that Secundus plays to Pliny in my book. You know, it could be a a genuinely um, affectionate relationship like Tiro and Cicero. But this idea that there would be a really smart, educated, intelligent, enslaved person who would be like your accountant, your steward, your your go-to guy to sort your life out, basically, or your life admin, your business admin. That's the role Philos plays um, for Rufus. That also includes like, you know, legal stuff, accounting stuff, personal household stuff. Like it's kind of all encompassing. Yeah. I mean, that's how I had it in my book. I think uh, it would depend on the size of the household. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, 
What made the Vikings go berserk? And can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. How did the Romans use mythology, particularly mythology of the people they enslaved, like Dido or Britannica, to subjugate and dehumanize them? Like Amara never, we know what her name is, but Rufus doesn't know what her name is. Phylos doesn't know what her name is. Like she has been given a name. Sometimes it was, it was something like that. Sometimes it was a Dido or something like that. And I was just interested in how that worked in taking mythology and putting it onto, onto other people who you don't know very well <laughs> and sort of. Amara means, it's, Amara is, is, is a word that Felix chose for it. It's, it's between love and bitterness. So Amara and Amaram. We've got these three characters that I can think of. We've got Dido, we've got Britannica, and we've got Berenice, all of whom have kind of mythological legendary names. And I think that there's a tie in here with, you know, enslaved people being given these names and what it meant. What are your thoughts on that? So Felix is the one who names Amara and uh, Britannica and Dido. And this is what would happen. Your name would change as you changed owners often. So you might keep the name, but often you would be renamed because you were a non-person, basically. So I had... Felix named Dido Dido, and we never know what her real name is, because almost like a cruel joke, she's from North Africa, she's from a small town uh, outside Carthage, and Dido was queen of Carthage. So I saw this as an act of cruelty on Felix's part to give this enslaved woman the name of a queen. Of course, you know, Dido's myth is not a particularly happy one either. She's abandoned by Aeneas, the legendary founder of Rome, and kills herself. Um, so it's not a happy name. But for me, I saw Felix using the myth in quite a cruel way to remind Dido of who she isn't, because um, he really sucks like that. But the mythology of Dido, like we always see it from that Roman lens, right? She is this character in Aeneas's journey towards him founding a great city. She's this beautiful queen that he has the stallions with. But before she got to Carthage, she had her own epic story. She was running away from her, I think it's her brother-in-law who killed her brother. I wrote the entry on it and now I literally can't remember. And she sort of takes this ship of refugees with her and they sail from Phoenicia to Northern Africa. And when they get to Northern Africa, they don't have anything. And the people there, you know, are like, okay, you can have whatever land that you can stretch an ox hide over. So Dido goes, right, how am I gonna get the most land out of this? And she takes the ox hide and she essentially unspools it, the entire hide. And then she wraps it around these hills and valleys and down to the shore. And that's how she gets Carthage. So that's the story of Dido that is also there. That we don't get because we always get the Roman, she's the object of, of Aeneas. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Well, and that fits in very well with the character of Dido in the book, who's got this whole back history that the Romans who own her aren't interested in. And and um, yeah, Britannica, they, they name her this just because she's British. You know, it's just like calling her British one, really. Um, it's a kind of non-name. Also because the British were kind of, non-people as far as the Romans were concerned and they weren't considered particularly cultured they were considered brutish and savage and you know there was advice don't hire you know, not hire sorry don't buy a Briton to be your accountant because they're too dumb so you know 
the fact that she's just given such a plodding name is reflective of the stereotypes and prejudice of of the time, I think. Philos in, in The House with the Golden Door, and also he is, he is a bit in The Wolf Den, his name is, he's not Greek. He's been given a Greek name, which means beloved or friend. And this was not uncommon for enslaved people to be given Greek names, sometimes quite fancy Greek names. This was something that the Romans did to people. And Philos, at one point, is recounting how he got his name. He was used as a male concubine by a really horrible owner, Rufus's grandfather, when he was a lot younger. And uh, he says that, you know, he was grateful that one of the other guys had already been called Eros. So it's that kind of, just the horror that not only are you named, but it might be a name to do with a function that you hate, i.e. being somebody's, well, lover isn't really the word, is it, when you don't have a choice? Like sex slavery was a big thing. One thing that we came across in our research on Hatire was that basically any enslaved person could technically function as a sex worker in addition to their other duties, which is something I see coming up in your book too. Yes. Um, they would just not really necessarily have a choice. There was there was a clause you could put when you sold somebody that they wouldn't be used sexually, but I doubt that was... There's the graffiti in, in Pompeii, take hold of your slave girl whenever you like, it's your right to use her. You know, that that is the attitude. That's written on the walls and that's the legal and... You know, if you were enslaved, you you had absolutely no agency whatsoever. So that was part of the life. But in fact, Seneca, in his letters, writes about this, talking about an enslaved man and talking sympathetically about this, that what a life this is to be used that way, to have to wait on somebody at the table, and then you have to wait on them in the bedroom. And, you know, you get, have to have your chest waxed whether you want it or not. So it's, yeah. Sorry, it sounds a bit grim. Wow. I guess the ancient Romans really did know what they were doing, you know? Yes, thank you. I so get that. And I agree. And I think there's this horrible get out clause of, oh, it was a long time ago. They didn't know. And yes, of course, they don't have modern sensibilities of feminism or a kind of belief system of slavery being wrong per se. But they knew this was awful. They knew this was a terrible way to treat people and they would not want to be treated this way. So I think... But, you know, maybe we're all like that. You know, you look at something like homelessness and when the pandemic hit, suddenly when homeless people, in case they got COVID and spread it around, oh, suddenly you could find shelter for everyone. These these cruelties exist in every time, but we don't necessarily see the ones in our own quite so clearly. But, you know, nobody would say it's okay to be homeless, that it's all right for people to sleep on the streets. It's just, do we collectively as a society make that a massive priority yeah i totally agree i'm sorry that Seneca bit was a bit grim about the guy having to like wax his chest but <laughs> um that's one of the least grim thing we did a whole two parts on eunuchs and what happened to them was so awful <laughs> yeah bring us your darkness <laughs> <laughs> commissions a specific painting on her wall in her new home in the house with the golden door. Uh, can you tell us about the painting she has commissioned and the mythology and significance behind the story? So the painting is drawn from two sources. So it is actually based on, on a, a painting, House of the Beast Hunt in Pompeii, which is this sort of um, massive kind of hunting scene. So that's how I kind of visualized it. But the myth is really key for Amara and her relationship with Felix. So in The Wolf Den, uh, Felix tells Amara that when he first met her, she reminded him of the goddess 
Diana, who looked as if she would tear apart every man who dared to see her naked with her hunting hounds. And this refers to the myth of Actian, where Actian the hunter accidentally saw the, the goddess Diana bathing naked, so she had him turned into a stag and uh, his own hounds tore him apart. So Amara sends Felix at the end of the wolf den a statuette of Diana, which is a kind of reminder of how she feels about him, i.e. she'd like him to be torn apart by his own hounds. Man, I love Amara. Yeah. And this is what she's painted on the wall, but she has painted Diana as Dido. So it's, it's a constant reminder to her of the sense of vengeance she feels about what happened to Dido and who's responsible for it. I mean, there are some myths with women exacting revenge on men, but they're not so common. I mean, Actian's, the myth of Actian is probably the most famous, you know, and I just thought for, for an enslaved sex worker like Amara, you know, this, this notion of revenge against the man who's seen her naked is quite a powerful one for her that she is capable of enacting her own revenge. Amara, you know, Felix might feel like she's connected to Diana, but Amara has a real connection to the goddess Athena. What does that tell us about Amara, at least in in the Wolf Den? What does it tell us about her, what she values, and who she sees herself becoming as the trilogy unfolds? And just a little side, what's your favorite myth about Athena? Yeah, so Athena was the the patron goddess of of Attica, which is the the region of Greece that Amara's from. I mean, she was specifically the the patron goddess of Athens, but her her patronage extended over that whole region. So it's a familiar goddess for Amara. It's the goddess of her parents, of her hometown, of her former life. I also think Athena is interesting. You know, she's kind of referred to as the goddess of wisdom and war, but actually war not so much it's more the goddess of strategy so military strategy she's the goddess of intelligence of scheming of outsmarting people which is what amara does and you know she's a woman and yet she's powerful and she's smart and she outwits men um so i think that's the connection with with amara both this sort of god of her father's god of her mother's god of her childhood um that she would have this sort of very deep connection to because that's how she was brought up, but also this affinity with with Athena, because in the first book she, you know, she's pledging her allegiance to Venus. By the end of House of the Golden Door, uh, Venus was the goddess of love and the patron of, of Pompeii, and also sex workers. Yeah, and the sex workers exactly. So that's that's her enforced patron, if you like. But by the end of of, of the House of the Golden Door, she's starting to pray to Athena again. And, I, you know, my favorite myths of, of Athena, they're not very likable ones, but... This is why I was interested, because there's a, there's Amara having that unlikableness, and, like, she's a freed person who's got all these contradictions, and Athena's kind of the same, really, in the way she treats women. The way she treats women, and also just her sheer ruthlessness, her scheming, her calculation, her coldness. Obviously, she's she's a goddess, so she comes from a position of power. But, you know, these are all attributes that Amara has. And, you know, the Athena of the Odyssey, who is both Odysseus's patron, but also she's not particularly nice. <laughs> she's smart, but she's also pretty savage. So, yeah, I find her an interesting goddess. We've talked about Athena a few times on the podcast. She shows up in Women of Myth, and that's always the tension with Athena, like, My sense of things is that there are a lot of people, I mean, probably us included, certainly me included before I knew more about her, that want to make her kind of a feminist icon. And she's not. She is not. People aren't going to like me saying this, but in a way, she's a tool of the patriarchy. 
In the mythology that we have, yeah. That doesn't mean there isn't stuff that we don't have somewhere else that just hasn't made it through. Like, that is an argument that can be made. But the stories that were preserved about her, she is very much, I would say, a tool of the patriarchy. For sure. I mean, I didn't want Amara to be a tool of the patriarchy, but there is a sense in which she is. She operates in the system that she has. You know, she becomes more like Felix in every possible way, really. That was some of the most interesting characterization work I saw in your book. I thought it was so fascinating. And I have a lot of sympathy as a reader for anti-heroes and anti-heroines. I always kind of like the scenes. I mean, obviously, Felix is an utter monster, but I like the scenes where I could see some Felix in Amara because it just made her so much more complex. They have a lot in common, honestly. And um, Amara is a much better person, a much kinder person. You know, she's she's not Felix, but, you know, their ability to detach from their emotions, to be calculating, to be cold, to use other people. You know, Amara doesn't do it as brutally or and she's not a sadist like Felix, but but it's it's there. And also, I did want to explore a really uncomfortable aspect of the Felix Amara relationship in this book, which is there. It's not as simple as mutual attraction. Um, people who are alike and see aspects of themselves in another person are drawn to each other. So there's that aspect of it. There's also, I wanted to explore though, the whole notion of the type of attachment that an enslaved person might form towards the person who owned them, both a hatred, a need to impress, a kind of, I just think it must have been such a complex, complex bond that people formed, um, particularly on the part of the enslaved person. Sometimes it would have just been straightforward hate and you just load them like a bad boss. But, you know, with, with Felix and Amara, this similarity that they have to one another. And also, you know, Felix's feelings for Amara are not straightforward either. Um, at the end of the wolf den, when he is so awful to Victoria, who, who truly loves him. And he just dismisses her and smashes her heart to pieces and um, sends her packing. And he says to Amara, who's standing there watching, I missed you. And, you know, maybe that's Felix being his manipulative self. But I think in a sense, it's also true. And in a different, in a different book, that might have been a romantic relationship. But I very strongly felt that I did not want to romanticize an abusive relationship or give Felix, you know, we'll wait for book three. But at the moment, the place where he's at as a person, he does not get a redemptive, obvious redemptive arc through romance, certainly, you know, that just would have felt deeply inappropriate. And that's another thing that as a romance reader myself, I love romance, I love romantic stories. And as I've gotten older, I've started to really spot the stuff that I've been a little bit habituated to read is romantic that is absolutely not. Abusive behavior, basically. Yeah. And that was something I, I like about both of your books is that I feel like you've picked up on this too. Like you're taking these, these tropes that can appear romantic and really absolutely refusing to let them. And I, th I think that that is very interesting because I find myself as a reader drawn to the Felix and Amara relationship. And it's not because I'm, you know, in love with it and romanticizing it, because as the author, you're not letting me do that. But it's it's just because there's chemistry. Massive chemistry between them. It doesn't have to be sexual. It's a hatred and it's it's a knowledge of who that person is. It's so and it's the the ownership thing. I mean there's just and they're both quite um ambitious, 
uh, controlling people. And they're prickly. They're both quite prickly. Like Amara can be quite a prickly character sometimes. And I think that the snippets we see of Felix in the first book, and I'm not saying anything about the second book, just talking about the first book, a lot of damage was done to him. And I think as readers of any kind of book, when we see someone and we get to see some of the damage that's done to them, we have this this feeling of real compassion and kind of like wanting to baby bird them and fix them. But someone like Felix does not want to be fixed. And that's kind of what I really love about this is you really show us like he does not see himself as broken. He does not see the parts of him that have been really damaged as needing to be healed by anyone else. And that's part of his trauma. It is part of his trauma. Or if he does, it's he then hates the person. So so the thing about the Felix Victoria relationship, which we only see through Amara's, you know, profoundly cynical eyes, is I did want to leave it open the possibility that in his own extremely damaged and abusive way, perhaps Felix does love Victoria at some points. Um, he certainly seems to want to be loved, even if he doesn't want to love back. And haven't we all encountered men like that? But also, I think his brutality to Victoria also stems from his hatred of his own vulnerabilities, that he wouldn't ever allow himself to care for her, not really. But perhaps if he'd had a different life, he would. And you're right about the sympathy, you know. And again, I just didn't want it to be so simple that, yes, he's had these terrible things done to him, but that doesn't that doesn't mean he's going to be saved. It's actually also the characterization from Felix stemmed from an interview I did as a journalist with a prison psychologist talking about people who are in prison for truly horrendous crimes, who said that they have two traumas usually to deal with, the terrible things they've done, and almost inevitably, the terrible things that were done to them. I, I just wanted that to be a part of who Felix is. I just I just think that, you know, your characterization of that relationship is it's so as a reader, it's so uncomfortable for me and I can't look away. And I think you did a really good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's sometimes uncomfortable for me to write. I, I can understand why. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Britannica? I just had a question about Britannica as you and I are both in the UK. You created Britannica, who's this great, strong character who we get to see a lot more of in book two. She's from the Iceni tribe, which is the tribe of Boudicca. Did you draw on any sort of Celtic mythology or heroes when you were creating her? I did draw on the sort of mythology of Boudicca to an extent in creating Britannica, you know, the kind of warrior queen. Um, but really what drew me to Britannica was not so much the mythology, honestly, but the I suppose, for want of a better word, racist stereotypes, but certainly the sort of xenophobic stereotypes that the Romans had about the British, that they were these savage, unintelligent, brutish characters. So they could be very brave, but they probably weren't very smart, all this kind of idea. So Amara has some of these prejudices. And there's, in part of the book, she is ashamed because she realizes she's not actually asked about Britannica's life. She's her friend, but she hasn't she hasn't really asked her. She's not really treated her fully as a person. And yeah, and Britannica's life as, as a warrior, as somebody completely alien to the Roman world. And, you know, when you read Tacitus on Boudicca, there's this kind of dual admiration and fear, I guess, in terms of what it might have meant for a woman to be that way. Um, Britannica is actually my favourite character in the whole series. You know, her, her sexuality and her gender is quite ambiguous. Does she identify as a man? Does she identify as a woman? Um, I left that quite open. 
And, you know, this is all part of the way that people other her as well in the book. But I hoped that because, again, she's only seen through Amara's eyes, the book would be radically different if it was seen through Britannica's eyes. But I always wanted to have have a sense of her being so much deeper and smarter and complex than everybody else, even Amara, perceives her to be. Do you think that there are ways that Amara perceives Britannica that are in line with those stereotypes? Like, does she fall into some of those traps? I think a little. I think less and less as the book progresses. I think she she comes to understand Britannica better and there is genuine love between them. And even in the first book, she's starting to understand Britannica better. And she always admires her for her absolute resistance to um, the life in the brothel. But yes, I think, you know, things like the fact that she doesn't ask her about her family, that she, it's hard for me not to spoiler it, but the role that she plays in Amara's life is not the role that, say, other women like Victoria play. It's how prejudice works, I think. Even if you're not overtly prejudiced person, you can still carry some of the prejudices that are kind of around, even if, if you're not, you know, being malicious about it. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing to be back and so lovely to see you both. Where can we find your next book online? Where would you like people to go to learn more about you? Um, so I have a website, elladyharper.com. And um, yeah, you can buy my book. You can buy The Wolf Den either in the US or the UK. And House of the Golden Door is out May the 12th in the UK. Waterstones are doing a special edition, um, which I would definitely recommend because it's got it's signed, but it's also got exclusive content on some of the issues we've discussed, actually, uh, about the slaves room that was discovered in Pompeii. So about the archaeology of that and about the archaeological evidence of enslaved people in Pompeii, on which some of my characters are based. So there's extra content in that Waterstones edition or your favorite local bookshop. Awesome. Thank you so much. Everybody, please go and buy her book. Highly recommended. And we will see you probably next week.